had enough of his jungle. It's Indiana Jones, a large size action figure. That boulder's coming in fast. He's new from Kenner's Raiders of the Lost Ark collection. Stay low, Indiana. They're right behind you. Use your whip. Whoa, I'm slipping. Whoa. A snake pit. Get me out of here. Snap. Indiana Jones, a large size action figure from Raiders of the Lost Ark collection. New from Kenner. Resume. Noun. One. A summing up. Summary. Two. A brief written account of personal, educational, and professional qualifications and experience. This episode of Comic Reader Resume is brought to you by Four Locos. Four Locos. When you're not willing to brave the liquor store in a pandemic, but you will hit the convenience store for the harshest stuff they have. In February of 1984, I didn't actually buy Iron Man number 182 off the spinning rack at Jimco. I wonder what effect it would have had if I did. It had this stark cover, no pun intended, of writing on an alley wall in the morning. Tony Stark will be sober or dead. It looked like an interesting and depressing story, but I ended up not buying anything that month. I never really did get into Iron Man outside of the movies, and even then it's more out of a loyalty to Robert Downey Jr. This book might have made a difference. I saw Footloose at the Dollar Show with my new stepsisters, so it probably wasn't in February. On an early episode of our podcast, One Song Each, I told the story of my now-lapsed vow to always dance to Kenny Loggins' title track, and I had the soundtrack on cassette. I've never seen Against All Odds, but the Phil Collins title track was huge enough the video was in heavy enough rotation for me to have seen it, an uncommon occurrence at the time. In March, I bought the Digest Best of DC number 49 from a convenience store, but I now suspect it was not in the neighborhood where I grew up. After my mother married, we spent time living in an apartment and then a duplex that got flooded during Hurricane Alicia. That was our first extended period without power, but not the last. I remember scooping water out of the house with a bucket. And this was where we spent the aforementioned Christmas where I got the Master of the Universe jet. It's therefore a safe assumption that one of the reasons I got so few comics in the early part of this year was because this was when we moved to a trailer home. I actually liked the place a lot because my room was on one end of the trailer and my parents was on the other end. The room was nicely carpeted and the first time I had a room all to myself. Prior to the marriage, I slept on a bed without a frame with my mother and then afterwards on a pallet made from a folded blanket and egg crate foam on the floor of our living room. At the duplex, I got the couch. If you listen to the One Song Each podcast, I once described my first memories of melancholy while listening to my Michael Martin Murphy's Wildfire at the old apartment. As a yin to that yang, my first recollection of a sense of euphoria was playing my room in the trailer while listening to the Grease soundtrack on a suitcase record player, the sun casting the room in a pleasant shade of orange-yellow. Also, my first episode of Deja Vu, as I recalled a dream where I was employing my Master of the Universe toys in the same scenario as I found myself doing in Waking Hours, so I intentionally steered into the curve by continuing to replicate the dream. Perhaps I subconsciously manifested the scenario, but it's the conscious sensation that's important here, not any delusions of prognostication. A lot of messed up stuff happened in the short time we lived in that trailer that has suddenly come to mind. All the years spent with my stepfather were damaging to me in ways that I'll never fully recover from, in part because those were still formative times. I was still developing into the person I would ultimately become, and so my ultimate self is inextricably bound to the profound misjudgments, hardships, and traumas. This was the first time our power was out for weeks while everyone around us still had theirs, eating bologna out of an ice chest. This was the time of me ripping my foot open on a glass bottle after dumpster diving barefoot, only for my mother to clean it with searing alcohol, wrap it up in a bloodied shirt, and hope for the best. 
Couldn't afford a trip to the ER, you know. Wouldn't want to make my stepfather mad, right? The beginnings of all those missed school days, hustler magazines lying around, and there always being enough money left for beer and cigarettes, if nothing else. So anyway, I've never been big on the cutesy animal genre, and the dated humor of the DC Digest did not tickle my funny bone. I think I just liked the cover by Jim Engle, and was roped in by the title's unfulfilled promise of funny stuff. Let me lay these features on you fine folks. The Three Mouseketeers, Dodo and the Frog, Peter Porkchops, Dizzy Dog, Raccoon Kids, Stanley the Timid Scarecrow, Doodles Duck, Pinky and Winky, Bo Bunny, Goofy Goose, Peter Panda, and Nutsy Squirrel. A triumph of alliteration over imagination, as far as I'm concerned. At least when Stanley and his monsters showed up in Kevin Smith's Green Arrow, I had a legitimate frame of reference, whereas he probably just had a copy of Who's Who. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 91, why did I buy you? The appearance of Black Cat, Black Costume Spider-Man, early allegiance to Al Milgram. How could any of that trump the horror of heroes trapped in the flesh folds of a nearly nude and thoroughly retunned blob? Maybe it was the melodrama of the seeming demise of Unus the Untouchable, a victim of his own powers, who otherwise meant nothing to me at all. For some reason, the blob's sobbing, wide-running tears at the end stuck in my mind. Please forgive the reference to a misheard in excess lyric. Marvel superhero Secret Wars number three was a bit too true to its name. Having forgotten that house ad from Phoenix the Untold Story, I thought it was the first I'd heard of the series when I eavesdropped some older kids talking about it at a flea market booth. I guess reading zero to two new comics a month wasn't keeping me in the loop. I asked the dealer about it, probably my first conversation with a specialist, as opposed to someone with a stack of well-read comics to sell for a couple of bits each in the corner with the other children's stuff. He pointed to a bagged and bored copy of number one up on a cloth curtain wall for $12. Dear Lord, how could any comic be worth such a fantastic amount of money? This must be the next Dark Phoenix. Issue number two was selling for a premium, though it could have only been double cover and still would have been too rich for my blood. I could only swing the 75 cent third issue, which itself reflected a painful 15 cent cost increase across the entire Marvel line. It was an okay story, with Spider-Man punking the X-Men. I didn't completely understand why heroes were at such odds with one another, but it was neat to see them all in one place with nice art. I decided to try to collect the rest of the series, and from that issue on I did. It was a first for me. Again, all of the March-released films I saw theatrically were viewed at a dollar cinema months later, back when it was still literally a $1 admission. Back then, first-run theaters ran about 3 to 3.50 per ticket for what was routinely a family of three. So for less than the price of one first-run ticket, a lot of us could get in. And if my sisters joined in, the disparity in value only grew. We saw a Splash, the one where the guy from Bosom Buddies falls in love with a mermaid. Police Academy, a comedy about how people's physical differences are hilarious. A comedy about how people's physical differences are hilarious, especially if you mix in sexual innuendo and Michael Winslow pantomiming sound effects. And Romancing the Stone, a mostly solid Michael Douglas, Kathleen Turner, Dane DeVito adventure movie, depending on your tolerance for grotesque Latin stereotypes. Regardless, it was still way better than any of the other Indiana Jones indebted flicks from that period that come to mind. Four Loco is available in turpentine and butane flavors.
In another instance where I'm just going to trust Mike's Amazing World of Comics with the dates, apparently the first wave of action figures in Kenner's Superpowers collection was released in April of 84. I almost certainly bought none of those figures fresh off the truck, instead staggering purchases over months or even years. I got pressured into trading my Secret Wars Doctor Doom for a Superman figure, which felt like a raw deal to me. I don't know that I bought a Batman either, but had one on hand for a while regardless. I definitely bought a Green Lantern because it was probably the single finest sculpt of the line. I especially loved the tiny little green ring on his finger. But regardless of my modern feelings about Hal Jordan, that costume design is enviable. I had a Wonder Woman, just as I did in the old Mego Pocket Heroes line, because girls were tough to come by in the early days, especially in the three and three quarters format. Both Wonder Women checked demographic boxes... But the Joes and Rebel Fighters weren't exactly beating down the homely lady's door. The Fisher-Price Adventure People female paramedic would remain the belle of the ball until designers got a better handle on female figuring. I got a Hawkman because he was another impressive sculpt with a cool wing-flapping action feature. But I think he must have gotten stolen quickly or lost in the great storage unit default of 1984. My favorite though was Robin because he had a sick karate chop hand and a maniacal grin. For some reason I'd broken the head off my Mego Pocket Heroes Robin and turned him into a brutal assassin. The superpowered Robin's sick grin and good sniper rifle toting hand meant this boy wonder would carry on the weird warp tradition. I never bothered with any of the villains or remaining heroes of the first series, though my brother would have some a few years later, including the shoddy Toy Biz versions. Most of these figures came packaged with mini-comics, but as with the Master of the Universes, they were too small and slight to last long in my possession. I did not own a copy of G.I. Joe or Real American Hero number 25, but a friend of mine did, and everybody saw the animated TV commercial for the issue spotlighting the debut of the chameleonic Zartan. I absolutely had a Zartan with the Swamp Skier vehicle, and I totally left him out of the sun for thermal reactive melanin augmentation. I, of course, lost his chest piece and even ripped off the hood, but I just pretended he had a mohawk, easily my favorite figure from the line. Uncanny X-Men number 183 featured a Colossus Juggernaut brawl, and was yet another instance where I skimmed a friend's copy rather than buying my own. I must have found comfort in the familiarity of Al Milgram's, and I suppose Jim Mooney's art, or like the chromatically challenged pairing of symbiote-enhanced Spider-Man and Black Cat, since I bought Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man number 92. Perhaps I was just intrigued by the cover question, what is the answer? A cheesy villain in a lame story, that's what. Daredevil number 209 was better, though off-puttingly weird. A legion of little girl robots with bombs in them were set to explode, so Daredevil has to run around the city, deactivating them. For instance, in one encounter, line attorney Matt Murdock has to quietly knock one down an elevator shaft. Arthur Byron Cover had a black sense of humor that played heavy under the art of David Mazzuccelli and Dave Landy. I suspect I'd enjoy it better today, as I'm now more adulterated. My strongest memory at the time of publication was sitting in the bedroom of the family trailer, cutting out an order form for Secret Wars action figures that I'd never send, thus ruining my copy. Marvel's Superhero Secret Wars number 4 showed great improvement, starting with an impressive cover image of the Hulk holding up 150 billion tons of mountain. I got hit with a lot of then-current continuity minutiae. Iron Man's a black guy now, and no one else knows? That added value to the series as a means of keeping up to date with the entire universe. Bob Layton drew the issue, and I didn't mind, even though I was an established, if consciously unaware, Zach fan. Boy, I sure wasn't giving DC Comics much attention, was I? I didn't buy Blue Devil number 2 for another few years, and I've yet to read the copy of the first issue I only acquired in the past decade or so. Still, it deserved mention before next month. 
Our only April motion picture was Swing Shift with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, which we probably did see close to release because it bombed. I guess people were getting tired of World War II narratives, or maybe the feministing of women working to build bombs while their fellows were overseas didn't track a broader audience. Four Locos will do to your middle-aged GI tract what Rocky did to a slab of beef. the newsstand in May of 84. I bet I must have spent over five whole dollars on comics that month. I did, however, remain frugal with Uncanny X-Men number 184, tossing through a friend's copy. It was a bit murdery for me at the time, with Selena sucking out people's life force, leaving desiccated corpses about. I was still a little too lily-livered for that sort of thing. Maybe it was the butch haircut, but it occurs to me that I got a fair amount of early Rachel Summers exposure, and yet that character never took. Possibly looking for an alternative monthly Spider-Man fix, I tried Marvel Team-Up number 144, in hopes of rekindling my glory days with The Brave and the Bold. It featured the visually awesome Moon Knight, a character I'm still fascinated by on design alone, and the kind of cool, kind of stupid villainy of the White Dragon in New York's Chinatown. I like the art by Greg LaRock and Mike Esposito, but I barely remember anything about Carrie Burkett's script. I tried it again, though, so it couldn't have been too bad. Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars number 5 had a lot of action, but there were elements of Bob Layton's art that I found a little bland in that book, and the fighting seemed pointless. I really can't tell you anything about the comic, except that the battle on the cover happened inside. I probably didn't get Blue Devil number 3 in its month of release, and I surely didn't pay more than 50 cents secondhand from a flea market, and more likely closer to a quarter. There was a couple that worked that particular booth, and I guess they or someone they knew had a subscription? I know I couldn't find it, or many other DC titles, on the stands. I was happy to have an alternative source, and I loved the book. Dan Cashley was a stuntman and special effects artist who, while filming a monster movie on a remote island, got trapped in a sophisticated Blue Devil prosthetic by a blast of magic from a demon. Dan had to live with his condition and the weirdness magnet that kept drawing him into wacky adventures. In this specific issue, Dan was being studied at Star Labs when Metallo crashed the party. A lot of mileage was made of Blue Devil being faced with a dangerous Superman villain, and I dug Metallo's unusual look, as well as his unique color scheme. The most essential element was his kryptonite heart, and I never forgave John Byrne for doing away with all those neat aspects of Metallo post-crisis. 
simply treating him as a Terminator T-800 model. Clearly, this issue sold me and sold me hard. I surely purchased Prince Namor the Submariner number 1 on the strength of that grim what-if tale from 1983. But despite my apparent affection for the inking prowess of Danny Bolandi, this one just didn't cut it. J.M. DeMatteis would eventually become one of my favorite comic writers, but he was an Aquaman veteran and it showed here. Too much time hanging out with ocean-faring scientists and flirting with cute blondes, not enough shouting imperious Rex and attempting murder over imagined slights. Bob Budiansky was no Mark Silvestri either. Four Locos, when you want your beverage to hit you so hard you think you have an allergic reaction to it. By June of 84, I was no stranger to G.I. Joe Real American Hero. The animated commercials were on the air, the toys were on the aisles, and my friends were paying for the comics so I didn't have to. Number 27 was special though. Snake Eyes, The Origin, Part 2, featuring a battle against his nemesis Storm Shadow, and a sweet Michael Golden cover. I was going to have to keep a closer eye on the book, because this issue was full of awesome for a kid my age. I think Wonder Woman number 319 found its way to me in my other friend's Grocery Sackle comics from 1988, featuring Dr. Cyber and a Huntress backup. Bypassing both of my friends, I flipped through Uncanny X-Men number 185 at the flea market and should have bought it. This was the momentous rogue public enemy issue where Henry Peter Gyrick fired Forge's neutralizer pistol and unintentionally struck Storm. I'd eventually spend years reading Storm's struggle in overcoming her lack of powers to lead the X-Men. And it would have been nice to have started that on the ground floor. I probably got Marvel Superhero Secret Wars number 6 instead. It was a good primer for learning the garden variety villains of the Marvel Universe and Mike Zek was back on art. I guess I must have been scarred by all those lousy looking Indiana Jones comics because they even skipped the miniseries adaptation of Temple of Doom. I didn't like the feature as much as Raiders at first blush but over the years it's become my favorite Indiana Jones movie. I even still have the indie action figure from that line which was in a weird format. It was too big for superpowers, kind of too small for Master of the Universe. I lost his hat early on because he was removable. The face was also weirdly old so that probably didn't help. 
To me, he resembled Humphrey Bogart. I usually played him as a detective. I guess he sort of became my Rick Deckard action figure instead of my Indiana Jones one. I even eventually came across a gun that looked a lot like the Blade Runner one. When I lived in Nevada, we started frequenting a regional closeout store called Pick and Save. The inn encircled by two apostrophes. We made a lot of unfortunate purchases there. Like the all-red outfit I tried to wear for my first day of school that made me look like Alvin of the Chipmunks. On the other hand, it's also where I picked up the Superpowers Anti-Coloring Book an extremely engaging square-bound activity title that retailed for a steep $3.95, but I scored for $0.98. Cents. I know this because I still have the copy with the price sticker that I filled with terrible drawings and horrendous coloring, which only looks worse when compared to the Jose Delbo artwork used throughout the book. Delbo was clearly channeling Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, and or borrowing heavily from his style guide stock art. Anyway, I also got the Marvel Super Special number 30 there, which was a much more handsome and complete presentation of Temple of Doom in the magazine format without the crummy covers the individual comics have. Nice glossy stock pages too, as I recall. David Michelini and Jackson Geis weren't as strong as Simonson, Bushima, and Jansen on the Raiders adaptation, but it was still solid. I think I may still have the coverless copy around here someplace. By the way, Pick and Save eventually got bought out by Big Lots and the name was retired. My flea market copy of Blue Devil number 4 was my proper introduction to Zatanna, and her flirtation with Dan made it easy to fall for her. I hadn't read much of the Satellite Arrow Justice League, so I was as much an awestruck visitor as Blue Devil was, even with Elongated Man and Superman being the only other heroes aboard. I'm sure a big part of what endeared me to this series was Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin allowing me to be introduced to the DC Universe alongside Dan, and take part in the wonder of the experience with fresh eyes. Paris Cullens and Gary Martin had a friendly, inviting art style, each complimenting the other well. I'm pretty sure I bought at least one issue of Mighty Crusaders, because I had a few of the toys, and was interested in off-brand superheroes. Always have been. I think maybe number nine was the one I had. Probably. Possibly. The figures sucked, and I remember nothing about the comic today, or ten years ago, or ten days after reading it that one time. This was a big month for books I wouldn't read until years later, but were long anticipated thanks to prominent house ads. These included the relaunched Baxter format series of New Teen Titans and Legion of Superheroes, as well as Jim Son of Saturn, and the War of the Worlds 1984 arc in Justice League of America, possibly my first exposure to the Manhunter from Mars. I also didn't read the Spider-Man Power Pack giveaway comic until late in the 1980s. Produced in cooperation with the National Committee for Prevention of Child Abuse, it tackled the very delicate subject of child sexual abuse in a sensitive manner. I feel like this was an invaluable book to put into a kid's hands, and I hope they're still offering resources like this today. We can laugh about the wild excesses of the anti-drug comics, but this book was a true social good. Also, as much as I shade Spider-Man these days, I respect Marvel for allowing him to be an abuse survivor, an empowering concept for other victims. Summer movie season was already a big deal by 1984, and we still had three full months off of school back then, so the Dollar Show got an extra workout. Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, was sort of the return of the Jedi to Wrath of Khan's Empire Strikes Back. In both cases, at that age, the third time was the most charming to me. The first time I tried to watch Ghostbusters, I believe, was the only time to that point we'd ever had a movie sell out on us. If I had to guess, we maybe saw Val Kilmer in the Zucker-Abrams-Zucker parody Top Secret instead. Given my druthers, I'd still watch that one first. I rewatched Ghostbusters with the guys a few years back and fell asleep on it. At least I did eventually see it theatrically, where the other grossly overrated playground favorite, Gremlins, would have to wait until home video a couple of years later. We may have caught The Karate Kid, but I'm not certain of that, because it's also possible I didn't see the original until after I saw the sequel, which was a cable copy on the VHS that a friend had. 
I like those flicks, but they were never must-sees. And the only one I know for certain I caught theatrically was Karate Kid 3. When I was a kid, like most people, I had a very low threshold for entertainment and accepted most 80s direct uncritically. Karate Kid 3 was so badly written, acted, directed, and scripted, not to mention so terribly formulaic and repetitive, that I recall it being an early instance of my actively critiquing on a technical level a feature as it was playing. I'm also unsure if we saw Conan the Destroyer in theaters or on VHS, as it sucked and was something of a coffin nail in the 80s sword and sandal resurgence. Four Locos, when Mad Dog 2020 is just too smooth and classy. July of 84, and I can't remember if I read Amazing Spider-Man number 257. I figure I had to have read a Puma story at some point, because when he appeared in an annual during Peter and Mary Jane's honeymoon, I was all, hey, the Puma. Then I didn't buy that annual, possibly because this issue was so unmemorable. I did buy Micronauts The New Voyages number one. It had a spiffy Michael Golden cover, kind of a redundant statement, and the interiors were like Kelly Jones from back when he had a Michael Golden influence. Plus, Bruce Patterson was inking. It was a sci-fi series spun off from a toy tie-in. The book was written by Peter B. Gillis, who took it way too seriously. There was some leftover continuity I could have done without as a new reader, and I was freaked out by Jones' rendering of a team member losing a body part in a totally random accident. Not at all what one was expecting from a mainstream comic in 1984, especially a toy tie-in. This led into an H.R. Giger alien riff, anticipating Jones' work for Dark Horse on the franchise. The book was more mature than I was, but it was interesting, and I would sample it from time to time. Still, it was largely Star Wars married to a pastiche of every other science fiction flick shown in that period. I did not buy a single issue of Mantech Robot Warriors, but I think I had a figure, and I saw that ad in the issue of Mighty Crusaders I don't recall reading anymore. Boy, those Archie Adventure series were full of lose. After skipping a team up with Iron Man because A, a friend already bought it, B, Black Lash looked goofy with a green ponytail, and C, it had Iron Man in it, I picked up Marvel Team Up number 146. It was by the same creative team as the Moon Knight issue, and I have the same vague feeling of finding it pleasantly acceptable at the time without committing much to memory. It paired Spider-Man with Nomad, who I sorta kinda liked from Captain America, and then pitted them against the villain who could disintegrate with a touch. I think his name was Black Abbott, and it also featured Taskmaster. So Black Abbott had some issues connecting, of course, and I think he ended up turning himself into dust or something, or maybe he burned off his own arm, I can't remember. I had a knack for reading team-up books right before their cancellation, and I didn't buy another issue of Marvel team-up through its final 150th issue. Alright, Blue Devil number 5 featuring Zatanna and a rematch with the Demon Niberos. Great art, fun story, and holds up to this day. Viva Niberos! Marvel Superheroes Heroes Wars number 7 had a fake-out wasp death that I thought mattered in some way at the time. 
Honestly, though, this was the first series I collected new on a monthly basis, but I only read any given issue once or twice, and it's all jumbled in my mind at this point. Jarvis the Wizard made an offer on a box of Cookie Crisp cereal to send me a free Marvel comic with proof of purchase. I did not understand how that worked at the time, so when I saw a bunch of books printed on the box, I thought those were the issues I had to choose from. I wished I had ordered X-Men, but I sent away for the debut of the Black Spider-Man costume and got Amazing Spider-Man number 258 instead. The sinister secret of Spider-Man's new costume wasn't too far removed from what I wanted, but it ended with a barefoot Peter Parker wearing an old Fantastic Four costume and a paper bag over his head. I didn't really see it as humorous so much as embarrassing. The creative team of Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends never wowed me either. The Fly Number 9 means another wretched, forgettable Archie Adventure series. I probably didn't receive this until 1986 or so. If I recall correctly, this was given to me by my stepsister as a Christmas gift, along with a Matt Wagner Demon issue and a bunch of regular Archie comics, clearly not bought with me in mind. Nothing undersells affection quite like latter-day Dick Ayers. A quick clarification. I don't list every comic that I ever owned or read from a given month. For instance, some comics first published in August 1984 that have been in my possession at various points have included the new Teen Titans number 3, Wonder Woman number 321, Uncanny X-Men number 187, Gibbs of Saturn number 3, Tales of the Teen Titans number 48, Grimjack number 5, Green Lantern number 182, Infinity Incorporated number 8, Dreadstar number 14, and Crash Ryan number 1. However, in each of these cases, by the time I got them, they were back issues. It's one thing if I bought a book a few months late out of a pile in a secondhand bookstore, or got one a few years later as a gift. On the other hand, stuff I bought at a comic shop, in a bag and board, nearly or into an entirely different decade just doesn't count. The whole point of these resumes is to share memories of my reading habits relatively contemporaneous to the point of publication, to express feelings and experience from a specific time, not just to offer a virtual catalog of all the books I've loved before. Who traveled in and out my door? I'm pretty sure I'd committed to buying G.I. Joe Real American Hero monthly while Mondale was still campaigning, but I'm not sure if I skipped number 28 or not. It had a tank and a jet on the cover, and vehicles bore me. Or number 29 had Despero, who does not. I recognize that this is midsummer, but July feels like a good stopping point for this episode. We're developing a repetitive Blue Devil, Secret Wars, Spider-Man, X-Men cycle that's starting to wear down my interest in discussing them all in one go. And I confess, it'll only pick up steam going forward. I mean, I'll actually take change out of my pocket and buy G.I. Joe soon. I don't expect many, if any more, skip months between now and then. Plus, August is right next to September, so I'll have to research the fall 1984 TV schedule soon. Finally, the only movie I saw this month was Muppets Take Manhattan, and if we go on much longer, I'll break out into singing the Muppet Babies theme song again. None of us wants that. Four Locos, when you like your beer to taste like it was filtrated through somebody else's kidney. Sleep. 
Four loco should be used to wean alcoholics off the sauce. It doesn't matter how little I mix into a beverage. I can never not taste the poison at the bottom. It takes hours to drink one of these cans. I think the can is actually growing as I try to drink it down. Ugh. Thanks go out to Adriano, Dr. Ange, who added of the previous episode that it includes coverage of a Supergirl comic. Between the Pages, Billy at Excelsior 73, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Eli, Fan Holes Podcast, Firestorm Fan, History of Comics on Film, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, Kaiju no Kami, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Crowley Jr., Kirk Spencer is Too Hot, Christados, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Odell Abner Dracula, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky, Richard G., Ryan Daly is Actually Cake, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Slangward Scott, Snakes Magoo 2020, Superbound, Tim Price the Podcrasher, Tim Wilsey, Tom Beach, Trekker Talk, Wonder Woman Warrior for Beast Podcast, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Doug Zuisha. Kaiju no Kami offered bookshelf picks with a notation, my comic reading resume. Richard G. said, Oh, I read comics, just not as most folks like. Wiki is a fantastic resource for getting through books fast. I do miss the art, though. Tom Bad Guy said, Great stuff. I like it. Totally following. Arthur Kenning said, This is a cool blog, man. Time to explore a little. Cheers. Finally, the Irredeemable Shag said, Slipknot could take Javelin with just one arm. Well, Slipknot only has one arm and could take Javelin. I avidly followed Classic X-Men the same time I was reading the current title. I was able to reconcile the two different time periods and love both. My Iron Man era was post-issue number 200. Love that comic. Love these resume posts. For locos kick your ass, for locos kick your face, for locos kick your balls into outer space.